Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chirpus. This week, I'm talking to Harry Robson, an archaeologist at the University of York in England. Robson's part of a large team that recently published a paper with the enticing title The Impact of Farming on Prehistoric Culinary Practices Throughout Northern Europe. But how on earth do you study prehistoric culinary practices? Just imagine, you know, on a, uh, on a frying pan in in the 21st century you know if you if you've cleaned it no matter how many times you've cleaned it or used it if you always turn the the underside which has been which has had contact with the hob you'll see you know dark black patches on there uh and even on the inside if you if you haven't thoroughly scrubbed it you know you'll have this this food which is sort of sticking to it uh food residues which is sticking to it and that's essentially what we analyze Instead of 21st century frying pans, Harry Robson is looking at pottery cooking vessels from around 7,000 years ago. At issue is the question of how farming spread from its original home somewhere in the Near East to Northern Europe, and especially around the Baltic, where there were already large numbers of people gathering wild plants and hunting for animals on land and for fish and shellfish. So what happened when farmers arrived? Robson and his colleagues got some surprising answers from a close look at more than a thousand bits of pottery which had been made by farmers and by hunter-gatherers. The hunter-gatherer pottery tends to be, in not all cases, but it tends to be more crude in terms of uh, how it was constructed and and the walls seem to be much thicker. Uh, Whereas the agricultural pottery tends to be a lot more refined. Uh, I don't mean that in a disparaging way to these indigenous hunter-gatherers. who are still extremely skilled. And how, how big are the bits you're looking at? In some cases, they're only uh, about the size of the palm. Some cases, uh, smaller than that. We're talking maybe four, five, six centimetres in diameter. And then in other cases, we have some really nice examples whereby we have uh, sampled from intact vessels, as in whole pots which have either been deposited in waterlogged environments, either on land, such as rivers or streams, or in the sea, in fjords. What can you tell about how people were using the pottery? What we have done, at least uh, with the group I've been working with for for nearly a decade, we've been extracting the lipids, which are the fats, waxes and resins. And what we've been doing is extracting those and characterising them and identifying them within the pottery itself. So we do this via two means, either directly analysing food crusts, which again is a term we've given to carbonised organic residues. And we sample those generally with a scalpel or if we are working on pottery which doesn't have these food crusts, we will drill directly into the the pottery itself, and via a series of extraction uh, methods, we'll we will extract the lipids and then characterise them using uh, isotopic as well as molecular characterisation techniques, 
and we'll identify specific biomarkers associated with, say, plants or aquatic resources, as well as dairy fats. So, so if I've got if I've got this right, then different plants, different kinds of plants, different kinds of animals produce different kinds of lipids. And if you know what the lipids are in some detail, you can kind of work out what kind of animal, what kind of plant produced it. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much pretty much uh, spot on. But the only issue is is that it, it's very difficult to get taxonomic specification. So, what do you mean by that? It's it's quite straightforward to say, oh yes, uh, you know, plants had been processed, cooked in this vessel. Uh, dairy fats had been processed stored cooked in this vessel but it's difficult to say well it was definitely you know uh birch or it was definitely tar uh uh well definitely uh pine no i've actually said two uh species of trees which you can identify <laughs> because they do have very particular profiles however you know there are others you know oak it would be difficult to say with any degree of certainty same with hazel. Uh, it's the same with, with dairy fats. So you can say, for instance, oh yes, dairy had been processed in these, but differentiating between, say, cow's milk, goat milk or sheep milk would be extremely difficult using the approaches we apply. So what exactly were the two groups cooking in their pots? So in this case, uh, they were cooking all sorts in short so we had hunter gatherers who in some regions that were cooking aquatic resources uh, in much more frequency uh, than other regions so for the lower rhine basin which included the swifter band uh, cultural group they were primarily using their pottery in order to process fish and then when the agriculturalists come in they seem to have in some respects continued processing uh, aquatic resources in their pots but with the adage of uh, the presence of dairy fats and then in other regions again it was it was very similar in the central and the western baltic uh, with the hunter gatherers who were uh, edible who were part of the edible culture they were using the vessels to process uh, aquatic resources both from coastal as well as inland locations but they also intriguingly had dairy fats in quite a lot of their vessels uh, and there are some nuances you know there are some some uh, cultural groups particularly of hunter gatherers who seem to have a who seem to have a more broad range of of resources uh, that were cooked in their vessels whereas other groups seem to be in some respects specialized uh, in the processing of aquatic resources and then when the early agriculturalists come in in general they seem to at least in the regions we studied uh, they seem to continue in some respects from the hunter-gatherers in terms of uh, they use the pots to process aquatic uh, resources but also they have a higher frequency of uh, pottery use for uh, storing or processing dairy fats so milk yogurts uh, butters cheese so the both groups then 
the hunter-gatherers and the farmers were processing foods associated with the other group. And, they, you know, the, the hunter-gatherers were processing dairy and the farmers were processing aquatic products and wild plants. In some respects, yes. Although the, at least the hunter-gatherers with the dairy fats, we, we don't think that they were milking per se. We think they probably had contact with nearby farmers and obtained dairy fats from them. That's our working hypothesis. And were the, were, the, were the farmers fishing on their own account or were they getting aquatic products from the hunter-gatherers? We think they were fishing uh, on their own account. But we think, uh, you see, what, what we have is in at least one of the regions we analysed, the Western Baltic, which encompasses Denmark, southern Sweden, northern Germany, uh, we have hunter-gatherers living on, on the landscape, uh, but around, I think it's about a 1,000 kilometres away, we have farmers who are, again, uh, living in northern Germany and northern Poland. But you seem to have this sort of frontier whereby these incoming farmers, I say incoming in terms of they've expanded from, from the south, they seem to stop and, and don't penetrate into these uh, hunter-gatherer areas and so you have this not coexistence uh, because we think that comes later but we have this sort of separation between these two different groups and we we assume well there's quite a lot of evidence actually that there is you know interaction between the two and then subsequently when the early farmers uh, let's say fully occupy and or overtake uh I'm not sure how, how this process took place exactly, but when they occupy areas which were once lived in by hunter-gatherers, uh, we think, at least in some of the regions studied, that they probably observed resident hunter-gatherers uh, and learned how to do fishing, shellfishing, marine mammal hunting. So do you, do you think they were bartering with one another, the two groups of people? Uh, it's definitely possible. I mean, there's, there is other evidence, material, culture-wise, in terms of types of stone axes, unique types of bone rings or shell beads, which were predominantly found... Well, there are two or three sites in Denmark which have these shell beads, for instance, but they are also found in areas which would have been occupied by farmers. So the question, of course, is who's made them? Is it the hunter-gatherers who have made them or the farmers who have made them but the both that seem to be you know in areas occupied by both at the same time and it's the same with these axes shoe last axes they're called they're, uh, they're beautiful uh, axes and they're very characteristic of farming groups however they are also found in and on hunter-gatherer sites so these these people they were eating many of the same foods. Maybe they were bartering. Um, is there any evidence of interbreeding? No evidence whatsoever. At least in the regions we analysed, there are very odd occurrences uh, further south. I think a genetic study was undertaken in the Danube Gorges, and I think there were two or three individuals which demonstrated that their predecessors, I, I can't remember how far after 
uh, I, I, I don't know the relationship as in yeah. whether or not it was their parents or grandparents or what have you, but there must have been some sort of interbreeding uh, between those individuals. But at least the genetic analysis undertaken in our study region has demonstrated no intermingling or interbreeding. It seems from what you've said that farmers learned to fish and to forage, but fishers didn't really learn to farm and they and they didn't interbreed. So what happened to them? That's exactly it. <laughs> that, that's the uh, million dollar question. So ultimately they are replaced. Uh, we have this population replacement, which is has been demonstrated by genetic analysis. So we know for a fact that at least in certain regions, say the Western Baltic, which is my main area of interest, Southern Scandinavia, so yeah, Northern Germany, Denmark, as well as Southern Sweden, we know for a fact that at around 4,000 BC, so around 6,000 years ago, we have the hunter-gatherers are 100% replaced by the farmers genetically they are but where where did they go we we don't know we don't know if they were killed off uh but there is no evidence that they they were interbreeding at least uh from the genetic sense they must have either been killed off or died because uh say for instance uh not necessarily a plague but new diseases infections may have been brought along with uh with the farmers there is no and there is no uh, environmental effect that was so detrimental that would have killed off a load of hunter-gatherers as well. So it, it really is a really is an interesting question, which we're still trying to you know understand uh, what happened to the hunter-gatherers. Yes, they were replaced, but you know why and and where. <laughs> with a complete, you know, with a completely wiped off the, off the uh, the face of the earth. I'm, I'm not sure. So, having looked at all this pottery and shown that both groups of people were eating the same sorts of foods, how do you see the story of farming replacing hunter gathering now? They did eat the same sorts of foods, but uh, there were. There were slight nuances in terms of these hunter-gatherers did have a more heavy reliance on uh, marine mammal hunting, shellfishing, uh, fishing, etc. Not that doesn't mean that the Neolithic people didn't have the same sort of focus, because at least in some regions they did uh, and did consume similar foodstuffs. Maybe not to the same degree, but they did. Uh, but they also had domestic animals which the hunter-gatherers tended not to have the big takeaway points at least from that current study was the fact that we have we, we have such well we have more evidence for the processing of dairy fats in hunter-gatherer pottery than we previously had mainly because we'd we had our group had undertaken uh, quite a few studies in the past and we had these small little indications that, uh, you know, the, the hunter-gatherers had dairy fats. And, and we always thought, oh, you know, is, is it possible that they had uh, milked dead, dead deer, which is, which is uh, 
reasonable suggestion, a hypothesis. And then after this current study, when we had so many occurrences of it, particularly in the Western Baltic, we thought it, it, it's just clearly not coincidental. They must have had contact with the, uh, with the farmers in order to have obtained these dairy fats. That was the biggest surprise for me. And I mean, that, yeah, that pretty much is only in the Western Baltic as well compared to the other regions. In comparison with other regions which I have, uh, other studies which I've been involved in, in whereby uh, a range of pottery from Spain, Portugal and France had been analysed as well as other areas of Europe. Uh, at these regions, the early farmers' pottery didn't have any evidence for the processing of aquatic resources, whereas in the four regions we studied in this paper, you know, farmers had uh, used their pottery for processing aquatic resources. And it's not just one or two pots, you know, they the must have had, they must have learnt fishing pretty much as soon as they had arrived on the landscape. So I think that those are sort of the two key points which, which I think are pretty, pretty unbelievable. <laughs> you shouldn't say they're unbelievable. You've got evidence. Well, yeah, this is there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent believable. Now, uh, if you look at the genetic evidence and you think, right, okay, these people have essentially learnt how to obtained aquatic resources from a water landscape pretty much as soon as they enter these landscapes. And they must have had, uh, you know, a degree of skill and they must have had some interaction and or, well, I think we made the point that it was potentially indirect or direct observation from hunter-gatherers. So there must have been hunter-gatherers and farmers on the landscape at that time after the transition for at least a century, maybe two, three centuries. And that's pretty, pretty unique as well. Uh, and very interesting given this complete population turnover. Harry Robson of the University of York in England. This time, around 6,000 years ago, which saw the transition from foraging to farming, is slowly coming into focus. And one of the clear lessons is that the process was different in different places. Still, the idea that in Northern Europe the first Neolithic farmers got most of their food from hunting, gathering and fishing is really intriguing. And after living alongside the farmers for perhaps two or three hundred years, maybe teaching them to fish, the hunter-gatherers simply vanished. I wonder whether we'll ever know what really happened. And that's it. I'll put a link to the research paper and some other goodies in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. That's also where you'll be able to find a transcript of this episode. Till the next time, from me, Jeremy Chervis, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.